We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you'll open your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 2. And tonight we actually come back to the underlying theme of the book. That is the idea of sharing the sufferings of Christ. But, but the reason we're called to share His sufferings may not be what we think. The reason Peter would dare say we are to share the sufferings of Christ is it's not to be victims and it's not to feel pathetic and it's not an oh woe is us mentality. There is a profound reason behind this. But I want to begin back, all the way back at verse 4, and coming to Him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So i got to ask, Anyone between Sunday and now, anyone greet a fellow believer by saying, Mr. Livingstone, I presume? Anyone? Okay, so that's your homework assignment. This Between now and Sunday, if you run into someone who's a fellow believer, even if they weren't here Sunday and he didn't hear me talk about that, walk up to them and say, Mr. Livingstone, I presume, and just see what they do. I think we could have some fun with this. What, Mike? Game on. Game on. Okay. The identity of disciples of Christ, living stones. Remember, he he says here, you also as living stones. He's the living stone. You also as living stones. This identity is, is stunning because we share this identity with Christ Jesus. Oh, He's the cornerstone, yeah, the the living cornerstone, and we as living stones are being built up and around and with Him in the spiritual temple. But it's marvelous. Christ is the rock, and you're called to be rocks. Called to be living stones, to share this with Jesus. It, It goes way beyond the idea of a rabbi. You know, the rabbi would have disciples and they would listen to his teaching, they would follow him, and they would take what they agreed with and maybe develop some of their own, and then they would go get disciples and do the same thing. This is way more than that. This is more than, than a guru who has his little minions gathered around him listening to his philosophies. It's more than a Jedi master, you know, passing along that which he has learned. To follow Jesus is to become made like Jesus, it is to find a whole new identity. And that's what is so mind-boggling about what Peter shares when you skip down to verse 9, when he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. How many times have I quoted that verse in Bible teaching over the years? How many times have we just kind of fired that one off as an encouragement for believers? But... This is stunning. This is profound. What he says in verse 9, Peter couldn't have figured this one out. When I think about the, the, the work that I go through in Bible study and finding verses and support, all of a sudden to realize within one sentence, right there, even before the sentence is over, he's just quoted four Hebrew Scriptures, one after another. Bam, 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 bam. The power of this is incredible. And he says, but this is you. Living stones. All of this refers to you. 
Well, I thought these things referred to Israel. Well, we talked about that Sunday. All the words in small caps there, the first half of verse 9, yes, refer to Israel in the Older Testament. However, now they are shared by whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. And I want to clarify something for you because I have been awfully careful to avoid replacement theology over the years to make sure that Israel is honored in its due place as the chosen people of God. But to that end, sometimes I think maybe I have, I don't know, undermined a little bit the fact that we are those chosen people too. That the church is chosen. That the church shares all of the promises and the blessings given to Israel. We don't take them away. We don't rip them off. But we have them. They are for us. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And it's marvelous. And all we did to come into this living stoneness, this identity with Jesus, was simply to call on the name of the Lord. To put our trust in Him. And then the rolling stone begins and gathers no moss, right? I mean, we start to go. And we are meant to rock this world. And I want you to think about that tonight because he says we're a chosen race. Now think through these things. Can I move through them quickly on Sunday? We're a chosen race. What does that mean? You know what? No one chooses their race. I didn't choose to be Caucasian. I look, and I'm being completely honest here, I look at my African American children and I think they're so beautiful. And I am so pasty. You know, we, we have this joke in my household that we talk about my kids, they, you know, Anna Marie will say, I'm not, bla- I'm not black, I'm chocolate. And she, said, and she says, and you are peach. Thanks. That's great. I didn't choose my race. I was born this way. It's just the way I am. The, the color that I came out, this is the way I was born. But listen, when you come to Christ, we're a new breed. We're a chosen race. We are no longer what we were before. We now have this new, I've called it in the past, an eternal DNA that has changed us into the people of God beyond color or physical characteristic of any kind. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again, what does that mean? New DNA. Born to a new life. A chosen race. As Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. All that other stuff is gone now. We have become a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. Think about that. Until Jesus, those two offices were separate. Royalty and the priesthood did not mix. You were not to be a king and a priest was not allowed by law. Jesus comes along and brings them together. Zechariah 6.13 He will bear the honor and He will sit and rule on His throne. Thus He will be a priest on His throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. He is the royal high priest and we are His royal priesthood. And as such, we are called to be in this unique double office. Both royalty and a priesthood, especially in the coming kingdom, which is confirmed by John in the Revelation, chapter 1, verse 6, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.10, you have made us to be a kingdom and priests 
which used to be mutually exclusive, but now it's the same, to our God, and we will reign on the earth. So we're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, which has never existed in the history of the world. There has never been a fully holy nation. There have been holy leaders. There's been holy intent. There's been, you know, a holy focus from time to time in, in different nations. But there's never been a pure, holy nation where our shared ethnicity is saintliness. And yet that's what we have been called to in Jesus. The Hagias. That Greek word which means holy ones or saints. Every time you see it in the New Testament, if you see saint, it's hagios. If you see holy one, it's hagios. It's the people of God. And that's us. And Peter said back in chapter 1, verse 15, like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And a people for God's own possession. I love that. What does that mean? It means we're owned. It means we're bought and paid for by the blood of the Lamb, pure and precious. We were not redeemed with silver and gold, but with the precious, spotless blood of Jesus, as Peter told us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says, You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That verse alone, if taken to heart, would solve sexual immorality in America. You have been bought with a price. Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And G. Campbell Morgan said the description of the church is systematic and exhaustive. It is a race, and this suggests its life principle. It is a royal priesthood and so has authoritative access to God. It is a nation and so it's under His governance. And it is His possession so it is actually indwelt by Him. All this in half a sentence. Amazing. The Spirit is speaking. So again, what is the reason for this exhaustive description? So that, continuing on, you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what's the reason for all of this, for this new identity, for this living stoneness that we've been called to? Proclamation. Evangelism, if you will. Evangelism. Gang, we are born again, built together as living stones to rock the world for Christ. Now, even when I wrote that, I thought that sounds like something you'd say at a youth rally. But listen, it works. We are here to rock the world for Christ. Do you feel like you're doing that? Can you say, I am rocking this world for Jesus? And most of us would say, boy, I don't know. That sounds kind of big. You know, I, I, I kind of like the 
Petros part, the pebble. I can pebble the world for Jesus. I can pelt the world on occasion, but, but to rock, what, what, that's not me. How are we supposed to influence culture? You watch the news. You look at what's going on in America right now. You ever feel like, as I often do, Christian influence is gone in the country? That we will not again have the kind of influence that we've had in the great awakenings of the past? You wonder, how could we possibly influence a nation so far gone? How, how can I change a society? I mean, really. Who am I to stand up and impact nations, rock the world, as you say? Again, that's a great rallying cry for a bunch of teenagers who maybe they don't know better. Oh yeah, you can rock the world. Yes, we can. But you get older and you start to feel a whole lot less like a rock. In fact, many times you feel more like Simon than even Peter. A little sandy than even a pebble. How many of us are the stuff of a Billy Graham. When I compare myself to Billy Graham, just don't even go there. Or a D.L. Moody. Or a Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You know, these are heroes of mine. And I can't even imagine having the kind of impact that these guys had. And I wonder sometimes when we are presented as Christians with such super evangelists and preachers, I wonder that most of us don't just slip back into our quiet lives assuming there's really little we can do to truly impact the world, to rock the world for Christ. That's, that's, that's not us, right? That's not the Bridge Fellowship. We're just glad we all showed up tonight. Here's the thing. You also, as living stones, we don't have a choice. You have come to the living stone and have therefore become living stones, which by nature means you will rock the world for Christ. You have to. So what do I have to do? Listen, because again, it's not what you think. It is not at all what you think. Just understand that when it comes to the sharing of Jesus in this world, we have no choice in the matter. If we are truly living stones, we're going to look so much like Him, there's going to be that effect, that impact to happen if we are living stones. Jesus said to all believers, go. Therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you to the very end of the age. So you're not living stones on your own. You're living stones Connected to the living stone who is with us and who has commanded us to make disciples. We have no alternative. If I'm a living stone, that's what I must do. I must impact my world. So how do I do it? Well, certainly not the way the world does. And not sometimes even as we Christians think we are supposed to. In fact, what Peter's about to lay out here, the world never sees it coming. Jesus put it this way. He said in Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
You ever wonder what that such a way is? How do I shine the light of Jesus in a way that brings glory to God and not to me? Peter's going to break it down. Watch this, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. There was an old hymn. Most of you probably have heard it or recall it. Some of you may have sung it in the past. I did Sunday morning. I remember belting this one out because it was one of the few boring songs that we would sing on Sunday. So I was so excited that there was something with some pep. Onward Christian soldiers. Marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see his banners go. We just sing that. Yeah, yeah, ready for some serious warfare. But we Christians don't fight the way the world fights. Living stones don't go into battle in the way the world goes into battle. We wage a very different warfare. We do so as sojourners and strangers. No longer citizens of this earth, but citizens of a better country. We live as, note this, I'll give you a few things to jot down. Number one, aliens in abstinence. This is how we start rocking the world for Jesus. Aliens in abstinence. Well, that doesn't sound very influential. So what you're saying is we're outsiders in a culture and we're going to abstain from that culture. Basically, yeah. We fight the flesh by abstaining from fleshly lust, which is a unique battle plan to be sure. Now, Paul said in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, and you don't whip out a sword and fight that. You don't pull out a machine gun and take down spiritual forces. You get down on your knees and you pray. Well, prayer? Really? You read and pour over and feed on God's Word. Well, how offensive is that? Well, in our culture, it's becoming more and more offensive. It's a completely different battle plan. The way we engage in this battle is, get this, self-control. Self-control. While the world is going nuts in the flesh, we exhibit self-control by the power of the Spirit of God. And it has to be by the Spirit's power because it's the final fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. Self-control. The flesh is fighting for dominance. Well, we've talked about this actually quite a bit. That we are all triune in nature. We have flesh, we have souls, and we have spirits. The spirit is where we best connect with God. The flesh is probably as far away from God as we tend to be. And the soul is the battleground between flesh and spirit. The two fight for dominance over our thinking, over our intellect, over our decisions and choices. Along comes the flesh pulling one direction and along comes the Spirit. And the more we listen to the Spirit, the more spiritual our souls will be, the more restored, if you will, our souls will be. But if we're listening to the flesh, the more fleshly our thinking. And that's a dynamic that is true as the Word of God and we see it over and over. And by the way, I've been referring to Psalm 23 as we've been studying this. 
considering this, this whole notion of the backdrop of, of suffering, sharing the suffering of Christ in the valley of the shadow of death, because that's, that's this valley that we're in right now. But it's where Jesus, again, I remind you, makes me lie down in green pastures, even in this valley. Leads me beside quiet waters. And you know what else He does there? He restores my soul. That's very specific language in the Bible. Note this, the Bible doesn't go generic very often. Most words are specifically chosen for specific meaning. And when David writes, he restores my soul, he's talking about that peace which surpasses all comprehension. Because suddenly now, I understand what the Lord is doing. I'm listening to the Spirit and not the flesh. And, and by doing so, yes, this is step one in impacting culture, changing the world. Aliens and abstinence. Because, and get this, this theme emerges more and more, because how I live is not about me. Oh, I mean, I understand, to a degree it is, we talk about sanctification, I want to be sanctified, I want to become more like Jesus, but ultimately, man, once I've got my salvation... From there on out, God's working on me, and that's great. But why am I still here? For one reason. That the life I live will impact another. Will change culture. It may be the culture of my household, or my local community, or my state, or my country, or this world. makes no difference, but I begin to impact culture simply by being an alien in abstinence. A sojourner who does not partake of the things of the world. Peter continues in verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. By the way, when he says Gentiles here, it's a Jewish way of saying those who are not believers. Okay, So it would apply to anybody who has rejected Jesus and who stands outside of faith in Jesus Christ. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may observe, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of His visitation. So, aliens and abstinence, and secondly, Christ-like conduct. Christ-like conduct. He uses this word behavior. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. The word is anastrophe. And it literally is translated manners. I'll never forget years ago going to a youth specialties conference. And one of the speakers got up there. We've got 1,500 youth pastors in a, in a big auditorium. And he gets up there to speak. And we're all ready to get jazzed with the idea of rocking the world. And he starts to talk about manners. For 45 minutes, he talked about the importance of teaching our teenagers manners. I was ready to pull out a napkin and, and silverware, you know, and to, to learn how to conduct myself appropriately. With, I'm like, what are you talking about manners? But that was the talk I remembered. And all week long at this conference, I kept thinking about, there's something to that. He was getting to exactly what Peter is saying here. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. See, early Christians, as well as end times Christians, were slandered for all kinds of things. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ, slander was part of the deal. It happened very quickly. The onslaught was intense. And in Nero's impending persecution, he would blame Christians for the burning of Rome. 
Historians believe Nero himself started it because he wanted to remake Rome in his own image. But he blamed the Christians for it. Slandered them saying they're the ones who caused this horrific fire. And of course the Roman citizens jumped on board and slandered the Christians for it as well. But even before that, as Peter writes this, all manner of of slanderous accusations are being made against Christians. Uh, Things like this. It was said they ate the flesh and blood of infants in a cannibalistic ritual called of the Lord's Supper. That's what the average non-Christian person would say in Rome of the first century. It was said they have these things called agape feasts or love feasts that are really just wild orgies. It's Christians. They were called antisocial because they abstained from the bathhouses and the immoral entertainment in Rome. They stopped having anything to do with it. Okay, antisocial. They were called heathens and atheists because they refused to worship idols anymore. You realize all they were doing was being living stones connected to the living stone. They were just keeping their behavior excellent. They were aliens and abstinence. They weren't doing any big thing. They weren't holding massive rallies. They weren't out on big evangelistic campaigns. I'm not saying that those are not good things. But that's not the deal. That's not what was going on. They were simply living their faith day by day as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And the church grew and grew and grew and grew radically. They didn't compromise the message. They lived it. In America today, you know this, Christians more and more are called ignorant, bigoted, flat earthers, clinging to guns and religion, knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. You know, these foolish, silly Christians. Worse than that, around the globe, and I just looked this up again, our brothers and sisters are being targeted and persecuted at levels rivaling that of Nero. According to the Turin-based Center for Studies on New Religions, during the last calendar year, this is 2017, 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith across the globe. 90,000. That's a hard number even to comprehend of people who are martyred simply for not saying no to Jesus, but for standing on their faith. It says that Christians are by far the most persecuted group in the world. And according to religionfacts.com, it's estimated that more Christians have been martyred in the past 50 years than in the first 300 years of its existence. Now when we get into Revelation, we're going to talk a little bit about this. Do you realize the first 283 years of the church's existence, the time of of persecution and martyrdom was so intense, millions upon millions of Christians were killed proclaiming Christ. And now they're saying that those numbers are being rivaled in the last 50 years more than the first 300. That's mind-boggling. And that's a world that looks at Christianity today and slanders it. And so what do we do? We fight back, baby, with Christ-like conduct. Sounds almost silly, but you know what? That's how you change the world. That's how you rock the world for Jesus. That's how we impact an entire society. It seems so meek. Yeah, but look at the impact. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may observe, or because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of His visitation. Okay, what's that? What's the day of His visitation? 
There's only one other place in all of Scripture that uses that phrase. Peter uses it here. And I am certain he got it from Isaiah. Chapter 10, verse 3, Isaiah says, What will you do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? The biblical implication of the day of visitation is Judgment Day. Judgment Day. And I want you to get this. I... Two weeks, two weeks of a double round of antibiotics will tend to leave your body a little susceptible to illness. So when you're through that two weeks of antibiotics, and your body's a little weak, but you're feeling better, but you're still, you know, your resistance is low. And your grandson comes to visit on a Thursday afternoon, which just happens to be the night that your wife's going to be at a concert and your kids are all busy, so you're on tap to take care of him. And as he's being dropped off, you're informed, oh, by the way, he has the flu. When you piece these things together, you understand why 2 a.m. Monday morning, I woke up with the flu. And spent the last two days flat on my back. Now, let me tell you, I, I like my bed. I do. I, I, I'm a big fan. But I am sick and tired of being in my bed. And I was for the last couple of days. During that time, it was funny. There's a reason I'm telling you this. It's not for pity. I'm fine. But Cheryl texted Barb Gilmore. And they were talking about something else. And she said, oh, and yeah, by the way, pray for Rick because he's down with the stomach flu. Barb texts back, Seriously? Enough! With a big cap, you know, exclamation point. Enough! I got to tell you what Rachel texted me today with no idea what Barb had said. She said, I've been praying for you, and as I've been praying for you, I keep on hearing enough. I read that and I went, oh yeah! (laughs) And then she said, there's enough for today, and there will be enough for tomorrow and the Lord knows when to say enough to anything we go through see you tonight and it completely spun around my whole view here's the thing enough has two meanings enough on the one hand God says my grace is enough for you he said to Paul my grace is sufficient for you I will give you what you need when you need it I'll give you enough on the other hand there's a day coming when God is going to say enough I have had it. And the Bible calls that the day of visitation. And that day is fast upon us. A day when God looks at the immorality of culture and says, enough. A day when God considers the rebellion of humanity and says, enough. A day when it gets down to the point that God knows there's not going to be another person calling on the name of the Lord and He says, enough. And when that day happens, what's it going to be for you? Where will you be? What will you do, Isaiah says, in the day of visitation? But note how Peter puts this. That these Gentiles who slander you now, that they will observe your good deeds as they observe them, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that tell us? It tells us that by your simple 
good deeds, your excellent behavior, by simply being a living stone connected to the living stone, people are going to get saved. People right now who are outsiders, Gentiles to the faith, will, because of your excellent behavior, they will, on the day of judgment, rather than cowering in fear, they're going to glorify God. Salvation will happen. That's how you impact a world. That is how you rock the world for Jesus. Verse 13. He says, continuing on, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. This is perhaps the strangest section on this list of seemingly benign, passive, docile discipleship. Peter now is talking about something that's like, Oh, Peter, if you had only known before you wrote this what was really coming... I really wonder if Peter had realized what, Peter, what Nero was about to unleash, if he ever would have said this. I'm going to leave out, Lord, we're just going to leave out the whole part about submission to governing authorities. Because I know what's coming. I wonder if Paul had known what was going to hit, if he ever would have written Romans 13, where he declares the same thing. Submit yourself to the governing authorities. But remember... What Peter's doing here is he is describing how we proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So it really doesn't matter if the church had been governmentally oppressed or was about to be governmentally oppressed. And it doesn't matter if that happens to us or not. The call goes out to, number three, silencing submission. A silencing submission. Did I give you number two? I got what? What was it again? Christ-like conduct. There you go. A Christ-like conduct. Number three, a silencing submission. That is basically give them nothing with which to accuse you. Just do right. Maintain that excellent behavior, so that even the governing authorities have nothing to tag you with, to get me with. Man, we are we are citizens of a better country. And as such, we are to be the best citizens in this country of our sojourn, or any country. The Iranian citizen who is a follower of Jesus Christ should be the best citizen Iran has to offer. Because we follow the Lord. Now you might say, this is a problem for me. Because what do you do when the government goes after the Christian baker? Or the Christian florist? who because of their strong-held Christian conscience politely refuse to serve someone from the LGBTQRS community. (laughs) You know, someone who says, I I, I can't do that. The lady who who I saw on the news just last night who was saying, this guy came in for like 10 years. I considered him a friend. I I was good to him. But when he told me he wanted a cake for his gay marriage, I I told him, I love you, but I, I can't do that because of, for conscience sake. And we hugged and he left and then his, his significant other posted on Facebook, next thing I know, the government was coming after me. What do you do? How do you, okay, so, come on. Peter, 
You're telling me to submit to the governing authorities who are going after me when all I'm trying to do is keep my Christian faith. What's the standard here? Listen, here it is. Peter even says it. Submit yourselves, underline this, note this, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Which immediately sets God's standards above all the standards of men. Whatever the government would come after you for, if it comes after you because it's a violation of God's higher standard, you go with God's standard. You don't give the government anything. You you obey the laws. You live as a good citizen. We submit in all ways to the governing authorities except when such authority and rule contradicts or denies God's standard. And that's where we say, I go with God. But you know what? With that, we also say, and if that means by your rules you have to find me, then find me. If that means by your rules you have to clap me in irons... (laughs) Throw me in jail? Throw me in jail. Peter is not writing this theoretically. Peter and Paul both are writing from personal experience. Acts chapter 4 verse 18. And when they had summoned Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now here's a conundrum for you. Not only was there Roman law, but there was Jewish law, which for a Jew like Peter and John, it would be an even higher law. And even that law was in violation of the higher law of God. We are telling you, you may no longer speak in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God, to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And that's the standard. You see, both Peter and Paul and so many others silently submitted all the way to death. Remember the story I told you? Tradition tells us about Peter leaving Rome, fleeing Rome at the, at the behest of the church. Get out, Peter, you've got to save yourself. And on the way out of Rome, he has a vision of Jesus. It's not in the Bible. This is, this is a colloquial story. Don't know if it's true. But that he sees Jesus leaving Rome. And he says, Lord, what are you doing? Jesus says, I am come to be crucified again. And Peter gets it and turns right around and goes to his crucifixion. And accepted his crucifixion. Why? Well, that was the law of the land. And at the same time, he lived by a higher standard. That is the law of God. Submission to the governing authorities. That's what it looks like. And with both Peter and Paul and again so many others, it was death without compromising one iota the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's how we change the world. Again, it is so different. It's just not the same battle plan that you would think in the flesh, but in the Spirit. We are aliens and abstinence, living by Christ-like conduct, silencing submission, or a-silencing submission, and number four, set free to be slaves. Verse 16, act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. I love this because the reality is freedom in Christ Jesus is the most liberating thing in the world. The Bible tells us where the Spirit is, there is liberty. There is a freedom in Christ that is not understood. It transcends all other freedoms and it transcends all other bonds. To be free in Christ, man, you can be free and be in prison. You can be free in subjugation, free in servitude. You can be free 
at a heavy-handed job or free at home where things are difficult, free in a tough marriage, free in the public arena. You're free because you're in Christ. Paul put it this way in Romans 6.16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I remember reading that when I was younger and going, that's like out of the frying pan and into the fire. I'm free of one kind of slavery, slavery to sin, but now I'm a slave of righteousness. I didn't understand the freedom in that. To be a slave... Of righteousness, to be set free, to be enslaved literally to Jesus Christ as Peter calls himself, as Yaakov called himself, as Jude would call himself, a bond slave of Jesus Christ is the freest place to be in all the world. So they can put you in prison, they, they can bind me with chains, they can limit our mobility. You know what they can't do? They can't limit the gospel. They can't slow it down. By all reasonable thought, everything that we've talked about so far tonight just sounds like it's going to get us into trouble and shut down the message. And yet this kind of living for 2,000 years has caused the Christian faith to grow faster than any other and to continue growing. Even in the martyrdom and persecution around the world today, it is still the fastest growing faith in the world because it's free. It's liberty, it's truth, and it's grace. It's a different way, but it's powerful. I love that the Gospel just keeps going. We see this throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the Word of God kept on spreading. The number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's wonderful, but then, in about the end of chapter 7 in the book of Acts, an intense persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. Oh no! That's it for the fledgling church! No, by Acts chapter 12, verse 24, it says the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. By Acts chapter 13, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. And as the book of Acts closes, we find Paul under house arrest in Rome, his first arrest. And it says in Acts 28, verse 30, he stayed a full two years in his own rented quarters and welcoming all who came to him, preaching the gospel, the kingdom of God, and and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. You can lock up Paul, but the word is unhindered. And then in Paul's second imprisonment, Days away, perhaps, from his own martyrdom, he writes to Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the Word of God is not imprisoned. One of my favorite verses. The Word of God is not imprisoned. Which means, if you simply speak the Word of God, it goes. It just goes. It can't be held back. It is one of the most 
potent things in all the world. That changes lives. That impacts culture. That has changed, literally altered history as we know it. And again, it wasn't just theory for Paul or or for Peter. They lived it out day to day, year to year, prison to prison. And if we can grasp, truly understand that the freedom of the Gospel is given to us to share, then whatever our situation in life, we will proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Verse 17. Honor all people. There are no caveats to that. Honor all people. He doesn't say honor all people except those who don't believe the way you do. Honor all people except, you know, the other political party. Honor all people except those immoral heathens you see going up and down the street. He just says honor all people. Love, that's agape, the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king, the basileus, the emperor. He just said honor Nero of all things. Can you imagine all those Christians throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia going back to this letter a year or two later and reading it and scratching their heads and wondering if God missed it and how Peter could say this? How are we supposed to honor Nero who just killed mother or father or sister or brother or friend? And yet the simple truth of the Gospel is that verse 17 is a beautiful summation of this whole text. This is just live this way. It is radically different than how the world wages war and that's why it works. Verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Paul talked about this at length. We studied this in depth in the in the letter to Philemon. How slaves and masters suddenly were all thrown together in the church, meeting on Sunday mornings. Slave and master sitting on the same pew, worshiping the same God. Now one in Christ Jesus. How does that work? And while slavery ultimately would fall, at least at that time, it would rise up again and fall again and rise up again and fall again. But the command of God was not, stop! It was instead, masters, treat your slaves well. Slaves, submit. Submit to your masters as unto the Lord, even as we would submit to the governing authorities, as unto the Lord. And get this, that word unreasonable, the translators are being really nice. Because that's not the best translation. It's a gentle translation. You know, be submissive to your master, even if he's a little unreasonable. Unreasonable is saying, hey, I know you're supposed to be off at 10, but I'd like you to work until 11 just because I feel like it. Well, that's not reasonable. What's the word really here? Scolios. That's where we get our word scoliosis. The word is translated crooked, twisted, or perverse. You submit, slaves, to this master even if he's perverse. Even if he's brutal or twisted. The Roman historian Pliny wrote of this event, a slave in Rome who accidentally dropped a glass in front of his master. 
As punishment, the master had the slave thrown into a pool in his grand courtyard that was full of lampreys, which is a blood-sucking eel-like fish. And the rest of the slaves were made to stand around the pool and watch the lampreys suck the blood and the life out of this slave. That, my friends, is not unreasonable. It's perverse. And that is what Peter's talking about. Which ultimately tells us it really doesn't matter how the other person behaves. It matters how I behave. It doesn't matter what they do, how they respond. It doesn't matter if they slander me. It doesn't matter if they stand against me. It doesn't matter if they shout me down. My response is submission and love and honor and peace. And that is how you change the world for Jesus. I think sometimes we're, we're shocked at the behavior of non-believing people. You ever find yourself just kind of doing one of those? Someone does something or says something or maybe something happens on a TV show and you need to change the channel. It's just ucky, yucky, gross. Why? Why do we ever expect non-believing people to act like believing people? Why do we ever expect a non-Christian to act like a Christian? They're not. They don't have that understanding. They don't have that worldview. And I'm repeating something that I've said before, but don't expect non-believers to share godly morals or values. They're not going to. Because as much as we try to do that, we look at the non-believer and say, man, I just wish you were a little more moral. Well, that's great. So do I. Share Jesus. Because He's the only way they're going to get it. Don't assume that a non-believer walks with the same principles as you do. You just be submissive for the Lord's sake. You just honor them. You just show kindness to them and pray that they, like you, will become a people who were not a people and will receive mercy who had not received mercy. That's how it's done. That's how it's done. Number five, fifth and final comment. Share the sufferings of Christ. We already preached on that, Rick. I know. Write it down. Share the sufferings of Christ. Verse 19. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And so to the cake makers and the florists who had been so attacked over the whole gay wedding issue and the way we've been watching this take place in our culture, the most profound thing that has happened is not a win at the Supreme Court. It's the representation of the love of Christ and not giving up any of the truth. It's grace and truth. If you suffer unjustly. For what credit is there if, verse 20, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when what you do is right and you suffer, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Why would that find favor with God? Because that is what the living stone did. That's how God thinks, that's how Jesus moves. For you have been called for this purpose, verse 21, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, 
who, Isaiah 53 verse 9, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. Do you see what Peter just did? He just summed up in Jesus everything that we studied tonight. He lays it out. He talks about it. He shares this is how we change this world as living stones. And then he goes right to the living stone and says, look, this is what he did. This is how he lived. This is why the meek, by the way, will inherit the earth. Because we will impact and change the world. Jesus will. And Jesus already has begun that radical process. The whole idea of sharing the sufferings of Christ is this. If by my suffering, like His, I can lead someone to Him who suffered for them so that they could be saved and they could be healed, it's worth it. That's what Peter's saying. To share the sufferings of Christ is not to go, I'm going to bear up. Oh Jesus, I'm hanging in there. I know You're sanctifying me. It's not about You. And it's not about me. To share the sufferings of Christ is to share the opportunity of salvation with somebody else. They watch you suffer just as the world watched Christ suffer for them. And people were saved right and left. This is the Spirit's prescription for living stones to change our world. It's not some kind of bombastic posturing. Some kind of epic evangelism or climactic culture wars is going to do it. When it's all said and done, I am convinced that the quietly submissive servant who, who faithfully shares the sufferings of Christ, that's the person that's going to make the greatest impact on our world. So I ask you again, can you rock the world for Jesus? It's not what we thought. For you, verse 25, were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Why does he end with that, at least this section? Why does he come around there? Hey, he's reminding us we were like all the rest. We were like all these who would slander or who would come against or who are ignorant of the truth, or who don't understand where we're coming from. We were just like that. We were straying as well. But now we've returned to the shepherd, or pastor, and guardian, or bishop, of our souls. We were, again, in verse 10, not a people. But now we are the people of God. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. It has all changed. And the sweetness of any and all suffering is simply this. In suffering, we are shepherded and guarded by Jesus Himself. To green pastures, side quiet waters, with souls restored from the battles right through the valley of the shadow of death. Father, teach us, Lord, disciple us, Help us to hear Your Spirit and to live this way. This is a 
radically different thing and not different because it's wild and not different because it's, it's noisy. Not different because it's this huge, epic thing, but different because it's so peaceable and quiet and gentle and faithful. Lord, there's love here. And as we think about these things, I pray that You will pour out for us by Your Spirit a great encouragement that whether or not we see the impact of simple, faithful servitude, of following after You, Lord, that the impact goes on and on. I'm convinced, Lord, I think You've shown us that the day is coming when we will rejoice before You on the day of visitation. And our rejoicing will not be the judgment of the world, but the salvation of those who have come to Jesus. Maybe even because we suffered a little and they saw Your grace. Lord Jesus, I ask that You continue to shepherd us, guard our souls, and carry us through this valley. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.